Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Thank you. Welcome. I'm Tony Halmos, Director of PR here at the City of London Corporation. Can I welcome you to this Editorial Intelligence EI mayoral, mayoral Commentariat event? and indeed welcome you to Guildhall, which is the home of the City Corporation. Uh, we are, of course, part of the local government of London, providing all the regular services for the square mile, and we also support and promote London as a world-class financial services centre. Not a topic for discussion tonight, but no doubt has, indeed has been many times at EI events. And we, we support a host of projects and provide a range of services across London, uh, to boost jobs and growth, increase skills, improve education, provide cultural and artistic facilities. The Barbican Centre, this art gallery with the remains of the Roman Amphitheatre underneath, <laughs> sponsoring three city academy schools, London's main archives going back a thousand years, and then Epping Forest, Hampstead Heath, and the City Corporation's grant-giving charity, the City Bridge Trust, and much more. So we do a lot of things. Yeah, and we are delighted to support EI, both with this event and, and with other activities during the year. In just seven days' time, the vote takes place for the Mayor of London and the London Assembly, with the results due late Friday afternoon, a week tomorrow. So it's very timely to have this event today, which we are, as I say, delighted to host. This is, of course, the fourth such election. The first in 2000 saw a win for Ken Livingstone as the independent candidate... 2004, Livingston is re-elected as the Labour candidate, bucking the general political trend of that year, with Labour generally doing badly across uh, the other set of elections at the same time. 2008, Boris Johnson, in a good Conservative year, wins the mayoralty for the Conservatives. So our first question this evening is, will 2012 be more like 24, the winner bucking the trend for his party, or 28 following the trend? Boris mirroring, mirroring 2004, or Ken mirroring 2008, or indeed another victor. And what will happen to turnout? Also, whoever wins as mayor, who will win the 25-member assembly seats, and what will the new assembly look like? But there are other questions too. What policy priorities will, will we be seeing implemented, depending on who's, who wins? What difference will it make to London by 2016? What will be the impact of this year's high points of the Diamond Jubilee and the Olympics? Will there be further changes in the Mayor's powers in the next four years, as there have been in each of the past two terms? And more generally, what will be the Mayor's relations with the current government? What do we make of the media coverage of this year's race, and particularly the controversy, controversy about the line-up in the broadcast debates? And last but by no means least, doing a stop-take after 12 years... What has the mayoralty done for London? To paraphrase a famous phrase, what's, what's the mayoralty ever done for us? How, has it changed London? For the good, for the bad, indifferent? What are the issues? And I suppose one um, should also ask uh, slightly, as they say, as a sidebar, what's the personal politics in the future for Ken and Boris, if they win, if they lose? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people here, if not everybody, would be interested in that as well. 
Look, I have an easy job because I just have to ask these questions. Fortunately, I have with me here an excellent panel of experts who are going to answer them. Of course they are. <laughs> and, generally, and, generally <laughs> and generally give us their take on what's happening in London at the moment in, in the next few days. If I could introduce uh, each of them briefly now. Um, Pippa Creer has been a political journalist for more than a decade, and she's now the City Hall editor of the London Evening Standard, a post she has held since 2008. She, uh, as you notice, is not Sarah Sands, the editor of the Evening Standard, who sadly has got a, a major clashing commitment that came up urgently, but Pippa is a more than, I don't know what the right phrase is, absolutely 100% appropriate replacement, let's put it that way. Given the, 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 the post that you hold and the work you've been doing covering not only this election but the um, last four years at City Hall. Peter Kellner was a journalist and political commentator for more than 30 years. Indeed, as I say that, I think you're still a political commentator, really. Uh, in 2001, he, however, he became the founding chairman of the pollsters YouGov and is now their president, which he's been since 2007. He's also chairman of the Royal Commonwealth Society. Steve Richards has been chief political commentator of The Independent since 2000, same year as the Meralty started. He started his journalist career at the BBC, and for 10 years he also hosted the G GMTV's Sunday programme. And Tony Travers is the director of the Greater London Group at the LSE and a visiting professor in their Department of Government. I like to say that he's, he's a one-man think tank on London policies and government. They each have five minutes to set the scene and tell us what they think about either <coughs> both the questions I've raised and any others that they think are appropriate. So let's get started and ask Tony to kick off. <clears throat> you, don't, Tony. you mean five minutes each, I take it, rather They've than five minutes five in minutes. total? Yes, oh, yes, just absolutely. Just to be absolutely sure. Yeah. Five minutes. Okay. All right, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Tony, and thank you, uh, City and uh, Editorial Intelligence, for inviting me. Um, this is indeed the fourth uh, Maryland Assembly contest. And what's interesting is that... Uh, Polling recently undertaken suggests that the office of mayor is popular. About 69% of people say they like the idea of having a mayor. Only, I think it was 18 or 19% said they didn't. And in the great scheme of things governments do, that's pretty popular, I would guess. And more to the point, unlike earlier versions of London government, um, there are no, currently, at least, no serious abolitionists. So the office is, to some, as I think, to a real extent, here to, say, to stay. I think this particular campaign, this mayoral campaign, has without question been heavy on personality and light on policy. Now, that might, of course, simply be inevi inevitable, uh, that creating a personalised political office, combining executive and representative functions across an area and a population as big of Lon as London, perhaps inevitably was going to attract personalities, and it has, and once they're there, certainly the current two leading candidates, and I know there are others, it's hard not to get away from the importance of their personalities, particularly given that polling has indeed suggested that their personalities are important in determining the way people vote. The light on policy bit is more difficult, arguably. Uh, lots of... Uh, manifestos produced at great length actually but I doubt read and certainly not much discussed particularly not much discussed in the large number of hustings and debates that have been held uh, I think they've become formulaic myself uh, they're all rather the same 
there are a number of people asking a number of questions on a number of separate issues to each of the candidates. People boo and jeer a bit, and that's it in an hour. It's not quite in-depth coverage, I suspect, and that, I think, may need to be looked at uh, before we go through this kind of thing again in 2016. As far as the personalities uh, and the leading candidates are concerned, there's no doubt that, and I'm sure others will comment more on this, uh, Boris and Ken, these people known by their first names, really known throughout the UK by their first names, forget London, uh, are extraordinary. Uh, Boris Johnson, a phenomenon, apparently defying political gravity, whether he wins or loses, to some extent, defying political gravity. Um, uh, a politician who, for whom... Uh, where his failures are often apparently viewed as evidence of authenticity, the kind of magic ingredient that all politicians seek. Ken Livingstone, on the other hand, um, the ultimate survivor, a survivor from a bygone age and an extraordinarily tenacious political campaigner who inspires an enormous degree of affection and love uh, amongst Labour activists and many voters... Uh, they're not always quite as much, I suspect, in the Labour establishment. Beyond the two of them uh, lie Brian, again, there's a three, the third of the candidates that stood in the, uh, the last time standing again, Brian Paddock for the Liberal Democrats, not as well known by his first name, I think it's fair to say, and um, having a great difficulty. The Lib Dems, who um, have fought in all these elections, of course, have had great difficulty in raising their game. They do rather worse in the mayoralty and the assembly than they do in borough elections. It's not entirely clear why that should be the case, so I'll put a theory in a moment. Jenny Jones for the Greens, uh, doing reasonably well, I think, um, although the squeeze on their assembly seats is nevertheless real. And Siobhan Vanita, who has been creating a big stir about why independents can't get more coverage, and I suspect we'll hear more about that issue later, no doubt. Um, but what I think the concentration that we've seen on the two leading candidates, which is almost inevitable, I can now see, certainly where they are as well known as they are, has produced a kind of heavy squeeze, like an exaggerated version of the first-past-the-post system, like a, more like a presidential system in America or France, where you just have to choose for this one or that one. And that, interestingly, has then fed through to the Assembly and had an impact there too, because there's a real chance in the Assembly, which is voted, through, voted on with a form of PR, uh, that despite using PR, there's a real chance that the Conservatives and Labour may win 21 or 22 seats on the 25-member Assembly, despite there being PR. And that's because all the other parties have lower shares of the vote, often under 5%, and all get squeezed. And you can't win a seat anyway if you don't get 5% of the vote. So uh, it's an interesting form of election which has had a an impact on the way in which we see the candidates in, in these elections. Just briefly to conclude, I think, coming back to these two leading candidates, Boris Johnson is in many ways a traditional conservative, the kind of conservative who believes in a slightly smaller state, a more efficient form of government, driving down costs, um, but with uh, an extraordinarily wide reach within his own party, wider certainly than his party leader at, current, at present, that's for sure. Um, on the other hand, uh, Ken is a curious mixture of old Labour and a Thatcherite, um, fascinating mixture of the two. Strongly believes in sort of big business and enterprise as well as being old Labour. 
much more centralising and controlling as mayor, and like many people on the centre-left, believes on the state being a bit bigger than it is now, slightly higher taxes in, in many cases. So there is a choice there, that, which, is, which in some ways is a quite conventional, is reasonably conventional one. Last but not least, um, is the London system a triumph for mayoral government, this curious American import into London? Well, going back to where I began with the polling results that suggested people in London on balance like it by some majority, you'd have to say it is. And, you know, on 3rd of May there will be elections, or referenda, I should say, in a number of other cities as to whether or not they should introduce mayors. Liverpool has already decided to. And in some ways... Um, I think this has been a, a, an experiment for London which has worked and given the city uh, stronger or more visible and indeed, frankly, let's be honest, more interesting government. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, um, next, Pepper. Thank you, Tony, and thank you all for having me. Um, it's a bit strange being up here on this side of the table when I've spent the last couple of months in the audience listening to what people on the panel have to say um, and following around the candidates. We've had tears and tantrums and taxes, and I'm not sure how many of those we'll have tonight. And lifts as well. Hopefully not the tears anyway. Um, so I spent the last couple of months... Um, pretty much 24-7, not quite 24-7, with, with the candidates, meeting at the crack of dawn um, in far-flung parts of London um, as the sun rose and uh, waving them off on their tube journey home, or in some cases taxi journey home, um, at, the end of, at the end of yet another hustings um, somewhere about the capital. Um, but what it has done the last, the last six or weeks or couple of months has reminded me just how important um, the mayoralty is to London and to the UK. Um, it's not just the £15 billion budget, huge powers over transport and policing, um, new powers over housing which are coming in, um, economic regeneration, but also the ability of the mayor to lobby the government and to represent the capital, to be a voice for London. Um, that's not just um, in the UK arena, but obviously also on the world stage. Um, the job has kind of become what the mayor makes it, Ken, when he took over in two, when he started in 2000 as mayor, could have been a um, could have been a statutory could have head, uh, led a statutory authority, and um, you know uh, plodded on with the business of running London. But he created something and made something much bigger um, on, on a much bigger stage. And <clears throat> and Boris Johnson has continued that. It's become a very significant in institution. <laughs> Boris regularly thanks Labour's, um, I think he calls it misplaced generosity for creating the mayoralty in the first place um, and allowing him this, uh, this stage. Um, it's, um, as Tony says, it's obviously part of this race is the personalities. We've got almost five million voters in London. It's the biggest personal mandate in Europe outside the French presidential election. Um, and we have the first name politicians of Ken and Boris probably no others, possibly with the exception of Ken Clark, as Ken Livingston likes to point out, who are known so, um, so universally by, by their first names. And they certainly have an, a, a real ability, a real talent for attracting headlines, which as a journalist covering this um, has made it a, a lively couple of months. Um, but the big question um, I think a lot of Londoners will be asking is, is this just the same old faces and is this the same, a rerun of the same contest four years ago? Can I be bothered to come out and vote? Um, Last, uh, last time the turnout was 45%, which was higher than previous, the previous time. Will it be so high this time? Possibly not, um, because, as I say, I think a lot of people think it is a rerun 
of the same issues. Um, I would disagree with that, and I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to, to talk about that more later. Um, the, earlier this week, the contest looked um, incredibly close. Um, it was uh, on a knife edge, so sharp that fingers could bleed, one commentator said. Um, <clears throat> now it appears there's still everything to play for. Um, Bar although Boris is in the lead, excuse me, according to the latest polls, latest poll, um, it does look like he's finally succumbing to the Downing Street effect, which he has resiliently managed to avoid so far. And by Downing Street effect, I mean the fallout from some of the national, the national party, national government's woes um, from the budget and then on this week into Double Dip and, um, and uh, <coughs> the, Murdoch, the Murdoch affair at Leveson. Um, we obviously haven't yet measured the effect of the Double Dip in terms of polling. I'm sure Peter will have plenty to say about that. Um, but it will be an interesting one to look out for. Boris, of course, counters that by saying that he is better equipped than Ken to get money out of the government in um, an economic downturn. Um, Ken also has a problem, of course, which is keeping his Labour supporters loyal up to or around uh, one in ten Labour voters uh, who voted for Labour at the last election are apparently considering voting for Boris. Now, whether that's because they find Boris amusing, as Ken claims, or because they are put off by Ken himself um, as a personality, as others claim, um, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, it was interesting to hear Tom Watson, the Labour's chair of campaigns, um, on the radio this morning suggesting that uh, Labour supporters in London should hold their nose and vote for Ken because that was the only way of keeping Boris out. Um, <clears throat> so it's just a week till the polling station. <clears throat> excuse me. It's just a week till the polling stations close. What could each candidate do to win? Well, I think that Ken would have to focus on one issue to the exclusion of all others, and that would be his first cut policy. It worked in January when the first cut first came in, and by reminding Londoners that um, that, that is his, his key pledge. Um, it, it possibly could work again. The problem is, is that although Lond Londoners want a fares cut, want fares kept down, many people don't believe he'll actually do it, even though he's threatened to quit if he doesn't deliver. So he needs to work out how to translate that into, into electoral support. Um, Boris, meanwhile, should probably just carry on as he's been doing, which is keep his head below the parapet, most on Boris-like, um, rather frustrating for journalists who follow him around expecting a gaffe and uh, a criticism of the government and him to put his foot in it. But nevertheless, it seems to be working. He's sticking resolutely to his message. Um, he's doing it deliberately. He knows he's doing it. Um, <clears throat> and so far, it seems, to be, it seems to be working for him. He also needs to hope, of course, there's no more problems for the national government, which in the current climate, who knows? I'm afraid it is just a two-horse race, but there are other candidates. And... Brian Paddock, even though he's much more impressive, I think, than, than four years ago, um, is still, I'm afraid, going to be horribly squeezed between Boris and Ken. Um, Jenny Jones is really in it for, because it raises her profile and will return her to the Assembly. And hopefully, she, as far as she's concerned, her, her, colleague, her colleague, Darren Johnson. Siobhan Benita has been a fascinating, I'm loath to use the word sideshow, but a fascinating um, distraction from the two main candidates. Um, and uh, she, has raised, she has succeeded in raising bigger questions about uh, the standing of independence in future, which I'm sure, as Tony says, will resonate for beyond, beyond um, th this uh, election period. And then, of course, there's the UKIP, there's UKIP and the BNP. But first and foremost, uh, for Fleet Street, and I suspect most Londoners, 
um, we'll have our eyes on the Clash of the Titans, Boris and Ken. Thanks so much. Peter. Thank you, Tony. There's, there's a mystery at the heart of this election, and it's this. London is fundamentally a Labour city. Two years ago at the general election, more people voted Labour than Conservative, even though nationally Labour was thrashed. Uh, our latest YouGov poll for the Standard shows that when people are asked how they would vote in a general election, uh, in London, Labour has a 19-point lead. So why is it in doubt? Why isn't Ken Livingston heading towards a landslide victory? Um, and all the polls, comrades today, us the other day, <coughs> polls over the last few weeks, we all broadly agree that it's Boris in the low 50s, Ken in the high 40s. Um, now, part of my answer, and it echoes something that both Tony and Pippa have said, is, uh, and I, I wish I'd kept it because I could show you, a year or two ago, The Guardian, on its front page, had a large picture of the back of Boris's head. Now, think about it. Who in the last hundred years, with the possible exception of Churchill, would be recognised by the back of their head? So it's not just that we've got two personality candidates. One of the candidates has a transcendent quality that I don't think Ken can match. And I've been saying both publicly and privately, and I think Tessa Jow will, will confirm that I've been saying it privately within the Labour Party as well as publicly. If this mayoral election were presented and perceived as Ken v Boris, then I think Boris is odds-on to win. If it had been perceived as Labour versus Conservative, then I think Ken would have won. And, in fact, it has been perceived, one can debate as to how much this has been because of the candidates, or perhaps it was inevitable, but it has been a Ken versus Boris um, campaign. Now, um, I'm going to make a couple of predictions. I'm not going to predict who's going to win the mayoralty, because I think... I, you know, I think Boris must be favourite, but it's sufficiently close that with a week to go, you know, I wouldn't be certain. But I will predict that Labour will win the Assembly. There will be more um, Labour Assembly members than Conservative members. Again, in the same poll, which produced the 19-point Westminster lead, the two-point Boris lead, we had an 11-point lead for Labour in the London Assembly. And I suspect it'll be somewhere around there, which will mean that Labour will have... 11 or 12 members of the Assembly and the Conservatives, 9 or 10. There'll be a, probably a two or three point Labour lead. Um, I also suspect that the media will concentrate on the mayoral result and not the Assembly result and record a disaster for Labour. But it does produce one consequence, which is that, let us say Labour has 12 seats and a 25-member assembly. It's only on any given vote, it only has to pick up one more from, let's say, the Greens, or possibly UKIP, depending on the issue, um, for there to be a majority against Boris. Now, this actually doesn't matter very much because the only real power the assembly has is to reject the mayor's budget, and to reject the mayor's budget, you need a two-thirds majority, and the Conservatives will certainly have a blocking third. 
Um, but I wonder, to um, tackle one of Tony's questions, whether if we see Boris, if, we, if Boris wins the mayoralty and Labour wins the Assembly, whether we will have the regular spectacle of the Assembly and Mayor being at odds and people stretching their heads, well, why on earth have we elected all these Assembly people if they're quite incapable of doing anything? So I wonder if there will be a debate growing up over the next three or four years as to whether the powers of the mayoralty and the powers of the Assembly needs to be recalibrated. The, the other prediction I make with joy in my heart is the BNP will lose the seat it won four years ago. Last time it just managed to um, scrape through the 5% hurdle and get a seat. We have them stuck on 1%. And even if um, that's a slight underestimate, they seem to be way short of the 5% hurdle. Uh, I think it's touch and go whether the Greens will certainly have one, whether they win a second, I'm not sure. Uh, UK, which actually lost its seat last time, I think probably well, touch and go, but they could win a seat. Um, although, as Tony said, you know, it, it is quite possible that 21, maybe even 22 of the Assembly seats will be Labour or Conservative. Probably 21, Liberals probably a couple, you know, and, and, and the Greens and UK perhaps one each, I think is where we are at the moment. But in proportional elections, people often make up their minds very late about voting for one of the minority parties. So you might see the Tory and Labour figures squeeze down a bit and perhaps the, the Greens are doing a little bit better. Um, so, yeah, that, that's... And actually, the other point I make, and I'll make it my final point, is, and I go back to my initial point, it, the extraordinary thing is that Labour isn't heading for a landslide victory in the election for mayor. And I offer this, which will probably offend everybody on each side, is that I think if Labour had had Siobhan rather than Ken as a candidate, I think Siobhan would be winning. Steve. Uh, Tony, thank you. Could I begin by saying that I think the mayoral concept, if you like, of which we're seeing uh, a contest now for it, is in this anti-politics era, a reminder that politics can be a benevolent force. If you read the memoirs of any of Margaret Thatcher's cabinet ministers, Michael Heseltine, Geoffrey Howe, even Norman Tebbit, they all say one of the biggest mistakes they made in the 80s was the abolition of elected authorities in London and elsewhere. They're absolutely unequivocal. It was a terrible mistake. And most of you are probably far too young to remember what it was like during that period. But I remember in the mid-90s, you had no idea who to turn to when public transport was a disaster area. And phoning up theatres to book tickets, they would say, could you arrive half an hour early because trains are so bad and unreliable, you, you, you will miss the play unless you leave at about four o'clock in the afternoon. Things were terrible and you had no idea to whom you would turn to get it right. And now we have, with this mayoral uh, contest, which I think was one of Tony Blair's good innovations and they're carrying it on, a level of accountability which I regard as wholly healthy. And the abolition of the GLC and all the rest of it was a terrible mistake, as Margaret Thatcher's ministers, though I don't think her, have acknowledged in their memoirs. In terms of this contest, on one level, uh, the candidates are not what would be an ideal, but there's no ideal election contest, frankly. And the fact that they 
the two who are fighting it out for the uh, victor's spot are flawed so obviously is, I think, more a reflection of the state of the parties than it is about the idea that there should be an elected figure accountable for a number of things happening in London. In terms of the two who look as if they're battling it out to win, as ever in these situations, my sense of both of them is that they are more interesting and complicated than their stereotypes would suggest. Boris Johnson, um, I know a bit. I used to do a programme with him when he was a journalist. And although I've never fully worked out whether the bumbling facade was an act, I'm sure it's partly an act. I mean, he might have come to become it almost in a sort of curious way. Where are we going? What are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, it's very sort of endearing, this sort of sense of a hopeless bumbling figure. Um, but I used to co-present the week in Westminster with him, and I noticed whenever he faced a deadline of any sort, he suddenly became utterly focused. And I remember him saying to me very early on, and I admire him for this, um, when he was a very successful journalist, you know, sort of rock and roll presenting, have I got news for you? He said, I want to be a politician. And I admire him for that, and he's become a politician. And I think there is a more serious side to him and what's very interesting, if you read the speeches he has made at the Tory party conference each year, I agree with the assessment of him as a figure emphatically of the right, um, but his speech, the mayor has taught him that public spending can be good. His, the essence of his party conference speeches has been, if, you, if George Osborne, you give me more money for the tube, you create jobs in Sheffield, Derby, and all the rest of it. It's like listening to Tony Benn in 1981, hearing Boris at the Conservative Party conference. No one notices the substance, because all they notice is the jokes and the style and all the rest of it. But he is a slightly more serious figure than um, caricature suggests, although it might be the caricature that has sort of, if you like, immunised him from current national politics. Ken Livingstone, whenever I do media training, which is not very often and I'm available for bucket loads of money, um, <laughs> I always give examples of the best political interviewees I've ever observed. Number one, always, in my view, is Tony Blair, who learnt the art of the political interview as a conversation. Number two is Ken Livingstone, at his peak, which has not been in this election. At his peak, he was an extraordinarily effective interviewee, and I know this as a kind of innocent spectator. I remember in the early 80s reading about Livingstone before I'd ever seen him on television, uh, this firebrand, pro-IRA kind of maniac. And then I saw him on a program called Meet the Press, an old program, where they had three angry journalists interviewing a politician. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Ken Livingstone on anywhere, and he was the guest. And one of the panel was the right-wing, florid Paul Johnson, who was exploding with rage about everything Ken Livingstone said or did. If Ken Livingstone moved his guard, you bloody left-wing maniac! And Ken Livingstone just said, that's very interesting, Paul. I think what you're trying to say is that you disagree with the way I move the glass, but if you actually reflect on the way I move the glass, you will see that I had quite a reasonable point of view. And Livingston just exposed the 
hopelessness of these angry journalists because he was calm and humorous and utterly <coughs> defying caricature. Now, he hasn't done that in this election. In some ways, he's reinforced caricature with some of his public statements. He remains one of the few national politicians who understands local government. I think that if the Labour government deserves huge credit for introducing this London mayoral system, um, it's still in an experimental stage. It's going to need more power. Livingston deserves huge credit for the introduction of the congestion charge, which was a really brave, innovative policy. Uh, which, you know, most politicians would have been too scared to carry it out. And he's got a feel for levers in local government that unquestionably Boris does not have and most national politicians do not have. I've um, written briefly about the independents. There's no doubt at all in a mayoral contest there is scope for people beyond the orthodox political parties, especially if there's a sense that the orthodox political parties haven't fully delivered in their candidates. The reason I'm slightly suspicious, and I know there are some in the audience who profoundly disagree with this, with people like Siobhan, is that when they claim on their website that they can avoid what I think Siobhan calls tired old political party political battles, She's pretending there's a political world out there which simply does not exist. Politics is about battles. You either resolve differences through military means or words and politics. There's no alternative. And to pretend there is, is in a way a kind of taking voters into a fantasy land which is arguably as dishonest as any of the posturing that the two more prominent candidates have done with all the stuff about tax and all of that. And I'll just end on the tax thing. My instinct is that that will not become, it might well have done for Ken Livingston in some respects, but it will not become a great big national issue. I don't think it will, you know, at the next election become how much do you earn, how much do you earn, and all the rest of it. I, 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 I just don't sense that's where things will take off. It has in this campaign, but I don't think it will more widely. And it's interesting that after David Cameron said he was quite happy for all this to happen, nothing has followed up. Um, but that raises one other issue about how broadcasters deal with these kind of contests. And this is really difficult. Because in this mayoral campaign, you've got some really interesting people. In, I'd love to interview Boris for an hour, Ken for an hour, and some of the others for an hour. The television broadcasts have been dire. And they haven't worked out a way, this is the broadcasters, not the candidates, of bringing to life these contests. And it becomes more problematic if you allow more candidates into these debates. The reality is people are only interested if they have space in the studio for a certain amount of time. And if you have five or six candidates, two minutes each, with Andrew Neil interrupting every 10 seconds, you're going to get nowhere. And I don't quite know how we solve this, but one of the depressing things about this election, I've watched a couple of these debates, and they've been almost unwatchable. And I like these characters, and I'm fascinated by them. So if I'm turned off by it, we've got to sort that out. But anyway, it's going to be interesting. Like Peter, I'm not going to predict. I just read the polls and assume they're right. But we'll all know about this time next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you all very much. Um, lots of food for thought. Uh, and uh, I'm going to see who would like to intervene first with either a 
question and or a comment. Let's take the lady here first. Steve's last point about the broadcasters not being able to field all seven candidates, for example. We've had Evening Standard, Hustings, LBC, ITV, Sky and BBC London. That's a lot of debates with, as you said, all the same characters. Could the broadcasters not cooperate between themselves and come up with a plan? Maybe they have the top two, Boris and Ken, and then rotate between the rest of the candidates. So the electorate get to see all the candidates in action up against the top two. That's just one suggestion off the top of my head. Because obviously, I mean, our point is that all seven candidates have met the criteria for becoming becoming candidates in this election, so the electorate have a right to see them all. Obviously, we've got the problem with the BNP, you know, I don't need to go into that, but on the other hand, the BNP are not a banned party. They've met the criteria, they've raised the money, they've got all the signatures, they're not banned. By being on a platform with them, it doesn't mean that you're agreeing with them, and putting them on a platform gives the others an opportunity to question them and for the public to, to see them in action. If we just look at the time that Nick Griffin was on Question Time, the BNP's popularity actually plummeted after that. So people should not be scared of putting the candidates on a platform. Okay. And I think it's very sort of weak of Ken yep. and Boris no, no. to withdraw. Absolutely. Let's, uh, Tony, do you want to respond to that? Perhaps? Well, I mean... <clears throat> with it's clear that the broadcasting rules that we have were designed for a sort of two-and-a-half-party system and to share the time out mostly between them. I kind of get that. But if you adopted... I'm not saying... But if you adopted the approach you've described, um, then it would undoubtedly encourage a much wider range of candidates to come to get into the race to get publicity. It would certainly, what you've just described, mean that... You know, people to advertise goods could get in, could go into the race because it would be worth doing it just to get that prominence. So I'm not sure what you've described would work, but I don't deny there is an issue here. But I'm not sure that that solution would work. I think it's very difficult to do this. But one thing we could certainly benefit from, and Steve pointed at this, is a completely different way of the broadcasters handling it. And if there were more programmes that went into depth into an issue it would presumably then be possible to bring in some of the other candidates from time to time into that. But, you know, uh, you would get more of the BNP, you would get more of other minority parties if you started to do that. But that might be a price worth paying. Pippa? I certainly think that the, um, the issue of independent candidates um, needs to be addressed before the next mayoral elections. And I know Siobhan says, well, that's too late for me. Which um, you know is is a fair point, um, but if she you know she's being a trailblazer here, and um, there's certainly discussions going on at the BBC at the top levels about how they how they avoid some of the conflicts that's happened um, as a result of this mayoral campaign. Um, just taking up the BNP point for a moment, I we struggled as a paper to decide how to cover the BNP at the last election when they were, they looked like they were on course for an assembly seat, that prediction was accurate, they got one. Um, and then obviously two years later, um, at the general election, um, it reached ahead. I was embarking, covering um, Nick Griffin, uh, challenging Margaret Hodge. And um, what was patently clear afterwards, um, both at the, with the assembly election and then with the general election embarking, was that by giving the BNP the opportunity to espouse their views, 
just proved to any sane-minded person that they were completely despicable and utterly wrong. And support absolutely drifted away from them. And um, embarking, certainly Margaret, I know we're not on general elections here, but Margaret had a, a, you know, a resounding victory there. And at the Assembly elections this time round, the BNP, as Peter points out, are, are, you know, they're going to be extinct in London. Um, I'm absolutely convinced of it. I take Tony's point that uh, if you know in advance that any candidate is going to have access to a certain amount of airtime through debates, then you may get to 15 or 20 candidates, uh, and that would be unmanageable. Um, but I guess the answer to that is to uh, raise the bar to becoming a candidate. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it financially. I would do it in terms of numbers of signatures across boroughs, and you know, I, I don't know what the precise number would be. But if, if one could, as it were, have a system whereby you did end up, as we have with seven candidates, now here I disagree with what Steve said, because um, in, in America, in the Republican primaries, you've had quite a number of TV debates with, I think, seven, actually seven candidates. Uh, and I watched um, a couple of these online, and it was very, very clear who was sane and who was mad. Um, and, and, and after dallying with the lunatics, they ended up with somebody who's perhaps a bit dull, but is actually on the sane side of the Republican Party. Um, so I'm not sure that... You know, I suspect, actually, a seven-candidate TV hustings would perhaps have attracted a bigger audience than, than, than we, we've seen. Um, I, I'm torn over the BNP issue. Um, you know, I hate the idea of, of the BNP getting airtime. I mean, I take the view... You know, I was against Nick Griffin appearing on Question Time, um, not on the grounds that anybody else offered, but on the grounds that Question Time, you know, Question Time doesn't on the whole invite you know, on the really, really boring Labour or Tory MPs who you've never heard of, quite rightly, because they want people who are interesting. And I just don't find Nick Griffin remotely interesting. And I think he should be kept off Question Time because he has nothing interesting to say. Uh, however, it is true that he did appear and that uh, he exposed himself to be the complete rat bag that he is. Um, so, uh, you know, with that as a comfort in mind, then, then perhaps on balance, it is worth you know, broadening the scope of TV hustings, even if this does mean occasionally um, uh, the B BNP being part of the mix. In answering this, I should have one other point I was going to make and is relevant to this, um, which is I don't think that on the Friday or Saturday after we've got this result, it would be possible to extrapolate from it anything of any significance for the national leaders. In other words, if uh, Ken Livingstone loses, for a load of commentators, I think some will try to say this was a vote against the leadership of Ed Miliband, is just pushing it. We all know. We all know that people are not going to the polls saying, right, that Ed Miliband killed off his brother and he seems weak and soft, I'm voting Boris. I mean, that sequence of thought is not happening, I suspect, at all. Similarly, if Boris were to win, and I've heard if Boris were to lose, uh, people are begin both writing, this is a disaster for David Cameron, either circumstance, you know, that if he wins, here's someone who could win elections, Cameron can't. If he loses, this is a vote against Cameron. I don't think either will stand up to much scrutiny. I mean, Cameron's got enough problems on his hands at the moment. Anyway, uh, entirely separate. I suspect this result will be analysed within the context of this result. 
which is a good thing, actually, because I think that probably reflects the way people will be thinking on the day. Which brings me to the issue we're just looking at now, which is a minor one, but not entirely insignificant, about how you bring these contests to life on television. And it's, it's not insignificant, because we're about to go through a phase of a whole range of elections. I don't think people have quite clocked how many elections we'll be having in Britain, police commissioners, more mayors, and all the rest of it. And I don't know the answer. All I know is that I would much prefer and to do as an interviewer or to watch a one-to-one -one with Boris, Ken, Siobhan, because they're all interesting people. I disagree with Peter. The idea of seven of them cramming in sound bites for an hour just turns me off. I, mean, I saw the Sky debate the other day when there were three of them, and I just was bored after five minutes. And I, I, I don't know how you crack it, but it's got to be cracked because clearly television remains the medium through which most people will see these candidates in action. I don't know the answer, Tony, but I think I, it's a problem. Can I just pick up very briefly one point Steve made about how the, uh, the results will be interpreted? If Ken loses, and if, it seems likely, Labour loses Glasgow, and then in, in the context of the Labour defeat in Bradford a few weeks ago, I think there will be, and it will be legitimate, a question about whether Labour has done enough to shed off to shed some of its old machine practices. Uh, and I think that would be a fair point and a proper point to make. But, but uh, do you mm. think it will become a story about the leadership of Ed Miliband? In others, will he become vulnerable this summer if Livingston loses and they lose Glasgow? No, but I'm, since I'm now a recovering journalist, not every political issue has to be refracted through the life expectancy of party leaders. No, I think, I think, I think Ed, I think Ed is, is safe, but this will be something you'll have to deal with. Yeah, it's a good okay. point to bring in Tessa Jowell. Tony, thank you very much. And thank, thank, thank you all for what I think have been absolutely fascinating analyses. And um, I'm, I just want to say... Um, a couple of things. I'm actually chairing Ken Livingstone's campaign as well as being the Labour MP for Dulwich and uh, West Norwood. And, you know, we are so, uh, so far through this campaign. I think that what in a way is more interesting is to think about what the next campaign is going to be like and how the next campaign will be changed by the experience of this campaign. And I think that by the time we get to the campaign after next, the, mayoral, the London mayoral campaign of 2020, we will see a number of things. Uh, we will see uh, mayoral candidates who are to all intents and purposes independent of their parties. Because uh, Peter is absolutely right, and I can't remember the number of conversations we've had about this, um, that uh, when you're... Uh, pitting against each other personalities as big and as compelling as Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson. There's no point on the doorstep, and I must over the last year have uh, stood on thousands of doorsteps. There's no point in talking about Labour Tory because people talk about Ken and Boris and they feel that they have quite an intimate and personal relationship with each of them. And I don't think that that style of, uh, of personality politics uh, is, is going to change. And I think that 
the, the second big challenge, you know, as we're all scratching our heads and wondering what is going to happen to the shape and the configuration of conventional politics, this is one of the things that's driving it. You see, I think that the only way anybody knows anything about the assembly is in a way to let the mayoralty go and fly off uh, as, an you know, as, as the battle of the uh, titanic independence. That does, I, you know, absolutely accept, raise questions about funding, about selection, and so forth. But those are exciting challenges that I think that uh, the major parties should embrace, not shirk away from. You may have some kind of loose um, relationship with the, uh, with, with the major parties, but I think that increasingly independence will stand. Um, on the basis of their own personality and their own vision of London. And one of the things that has been, uh, again, I think, uh, fizzy about this election, and I don't think it's uh, true, I think it was Tony who said this hasn't been an election about policy. Uh, I mean, don't get me going on that, quite honestly. Um, I think there has been loads of policy, but the dominance of uh, the the rather formulaic um, coverage has meant that a lot of the serious debate about policy, uh, not serious, but that, you know, that connects with, you know, the lives and relevance um, for, 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 for Londoners has actually, uh, has actually got lost. And so I think that we need to stand up for the distinctiveness of a mayoral campaign, the distinctiveness of a London mayor, as, an, uh, as, as Pippa said, you know, as um, a public uh, representative who holds one of the biggest mandates uh, in Europe. And I think that there needs to be a lot of very open-minded consideration as to how we make this um, both uh, a position which has more powers than uh, the present mayoralty, uh, where the relationship between the mayor and the, uh, the scrutiny of the GLA is more purposeful, more defined, means more to, um, to Londoners. And how we can uh, learn from this election, and I think the excitement that a number of the, uh, the you know, Siobhan, uh, but also the other candidates from the smaller parties have uh, injected, and look at how we resolve that the next mayoral contest is going to be a different one, and it's going to be one that uh, perhaps harnesses some of the frustrated ambitions of this campaign. Thanks so much. Let's take some more comments before we come back to the panel. Uh, Stryker McGuire, I'm with Bloomberg, the, the news organization, not the mayor of New York. Um, and is it okay to ask a question, by the way? Of rather? Course. Okay. Of course. Uh, I was wondering, do you think that the, that the role of mayor here will evolve over time into a, a stronger institution? Fair question. Can, if we can hold, if people can hold that moment, come, come forward. Let's do it that way. It's the easiest way to do it. Hi, Phil Rosenberg from the Faith Forum for London, but I'll ask these in a personal capacity. Um, first of all, uh, if, and I know it's a big if with the polling, Boris Johnson wins, will he complete his term? That's the first question. Uh, second, if, and an equally big if, uh, Ken loses, and I want to hear more of the views on this, will uh, there be a leadership challenge in the Labour Party? And thirdly, uh, Siobhan Benita, uh, 
what's in it for her? What does she want to get after this if she doesn't win? <laughs> Thank you. Um, my name is Dele and I'm a communications executive and I'm also the editor of a blog for the Royal African Society called Diaspora Debate. My question is really, I suppose, probably directed at Pippa mostly. Um, it's about, I mean, Tessa just referred to it. It's about policies in a sense. I don't get a sense that the Evening Standard as probably the only sort of London paper really has covered policies in a very detailed way. There hasn't really been a sort of scorecard of what these people represent. And when I talk to people who are interested in the elections, um, well, wh who are observing the elections, for them, mostly it's a sideshow until you mention that, say, Brian Paddock wants to introduce a one-fair policy for buses in London, and uh, he wants to sort of limit stop and search powers. And it's quite interesting that the Evening Standard isn't reflecting that, so I want to know if you... Um, what are the challenges for you in doing that, and why is it that there's not enough coverage in the in the papers on the actual policies? Because the personalities are big, but I think the policies are um, equally as important, and I think that's what would engage a lot more people. And it's a bit disingenuous for us to assume that people are only interested in these people just because they're big personalities. My name is Andrew White. Um, this is a question in a personal capacity. I. I intuitively find appealing Steve's notion of visible accountability, and I think there's no question that the mayoralty has added to the gaiety of the nation and of the, and of the city. Uh, the personalities issue is a big one. We're even referring to a third independent candidate by her first name. So clearly personalities are really important. But I have to say I am troubled by Tony's initial challenge, which is what has the mayoralty done for London? And I'm troubled by the policy light issue, which you've just been talking about. And so I've got two, two thoughts and questions for the panel. The first is beyond the extraordinary ambition and success of the congestion charge, what has been the big difference that the mayoralty has made to London in the last 12 years? And secondly, looking beyond London and looking as mayor mayoral elections become beyond uh, London into other cities, if you're to look at a major city that has made a real difference and looks radically different in the last 10, 15 years, and much more different than London looks than it did in 2000, you'd look at Manchester. And Manchester did it without a mayor and with a combination of classic old style politics of a strong council and a strong chief executive and what does that tell us about this about how we get that balance right between concrete policy delivery and big personalities let's um, run through the panel to pick up those comments and questions start with Steve really really quickly on each of them I am fascinated by Tessa's analysis of where we'll be in four to eight years time I'm sure um, she is right in this better place, having knocked on 30,000 doors to make that judgment. I, all I would say is, if Tessa is right, that poses a massive challenge for political parties in Britain who are already kind of dying in front of our eyes. No membership, disillusionment with them, no money. And if you now have the triumph of independence in big mayoral capitals, where does that leave political parties? I merely pose that as a question. Um, I think the answer to Stryker's question is unquestionably the powers will grow. It can only go that way. You can't imagine a central government taking powers away from uh, this institution. And the trend has been for them to subtly and discreetly grow. Central government is scared of giving away power. But I think that's the way it will go. In terms of the question, uh, what has uh, the mayority done for London? I think it has transformed uh, public transport and uh, the level of investment. And I just remember what it was like before. 
And um, I don't think it will ever go back to that because the stakes are too high for this figure who wants to be re-elected. The point about Manchester and traditional councils is a really interesting and difficult one. But my instinct is that in this media age, it will be um, mayors who are held more accountable than largely anonymous councils. And that level of accountability will provide improvements to service. Um, but I take your point that Manchester is an alternative example of the way to go. Peter. Um, I'm going to say something which I suspect is now a minority view. I like political parties. I think they are important. I think they are a bulwark, uh, as Harold Lasky said a million years ago, against Caesarism, against dictators, against people who you know, rise up. Now, since both Richard Branson and Alan Sugar are far richer than me, I don't want to <laughs> risk a libel action. But both at different times have been mentioned as possible mayoral candidates. They clearly have a big public profile. How can I put it? I don't think they deserve it. Um, I think they're... Um, I think The Apprentice is one of the most dangerous programmes on television. Um, uh, Virgin Atlantic is great. Pretty well everything else Richard Branson has done has not been terribly successful. Um, but they have, you know, but plainly were they to enter the field as an independent candidate with a lot of money, you know, they might well win. Um, that worries me. Um, so... You know, I, 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 I suspect Tessa's prediction about 2020 is right, because I view that prediction with foreboding. I would much prefer parties to revive and to get bigger and to be respected once again and to be the really important voluntary intermediary institutions that they, you know, they used to be 50 or, or 100 years ago. Um, the question about will, will, will Boris, complete, if he wins, will he complete his term? Probably yes, because I, I guess the, the proposition behind the question is that he would want to stand for Parliament in 2015 and if elected, cease to be mayor. But in order to uh, be a candidate, that would have to be decided in the next, I don't know, year or 18 months. And I don't think even he has the brass neck <laughs> to jump ship quite that early. But it does raise a question in my mind, to which I suspect Tony knows the answer. If a mayor does step down or becomes incapacitated, what then happens? Is there a sort of by-election for mayor? Uh, but, yeah, anyway. Deputy takes over then by-election. Right. OK. And the deputy is who? Richard Barnes, currently. There's a statutory so deputy. So, Mayor Barnes. You have Mayor Barnes for six months. Six months, 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 months Mayor Barnes. Okay. Six months before mayoral election, um, the deputy just runs the show. But, and... Um, if, if, if Ken loses, will there be a leadership challenge to Ed band? No. Um, Pippa, um, there was a particular question directly. Yes, um, I'll go through the others as well. Um, Stryker's question um, about London's powers growing. Yes, absolutely, I'm sure they will. They already have. Um, when uh, the Conservative-led coalition took over, the mayoralty was given its second tranche of powers, including uh, 1.2 billion um, uh, for a housing budget, the HCA was, um, was devolved to London to the mayor. And um, obviously we've got policing after the next election coming um, more directly the responsibility for the mayor. Um, and I suspect that will continue to be the case, um, a drip-drip effect over coming years, um, until, I'm not sure if Boris will get his, well, it, should he win, um, he'll get his uh, wish for, um, to wish to retain more of London's tax taxes. But um, that would certainly... Um, 
be interesting, <clears throat> but uh, he's um, good to try and pursue that. But anyway, in, in other policy areas, I think there will be um, a growth um, in mayoral powers. Um, the, the question specifically directed to me about the Evening Standards coverage or media coverage in general in London. Um, we've covered every single policy launch of um, that the main candidates have um, have made and also the main policy launches of I'm good to define as the, the, the minor candidates. Um, the problem we have, I suppose, in the last couple of weeks of campaign is that unless anybody's holding it back any really exciting stories for us next week, most of the policy announcements have been made. So inevitably, in the last few weeks of a campaign, it becomes a lot more about um, the ding-dong of political debate, um, what was said at a hustings the night before, what was said in a lift, um, what the polls say. Um, and that, of course, is um, made even more the case by the fact that we do have two such big personalities but we consider it our duty um, to reprise what each of the candidates stands for and next week we will be doing, we'll be having independent experts looking at, at the main policy pledges um, and assessing them so that will happen um, so I hope that answers your question on that um, and as for Boris will complete his term, well I disagree with Peter, I think Boris probably does have the brass neck to um, go for a seat at the last possible moment. But I think it depends. And he genu I think he genuinely loves the job of Mayor of London, but I think a lot of it depends on what happens at Westminster. Um, and I don't think even he knows that now. But if he, if he senses an opening, um, then it wouldn't surprise me at all if he manages to um, play things to his advantage and find himself both as MP and Mayor um, after 2015. Yeah, I mean, there'd be nothing, I mean, not, I'm saying he'll do this, there would be nothing to stop uh, an incumbent Mayor getting a constituency and standing and becoming an MP in parallel. It's happened in the other way around, both Boris and Ken, so if he were that desperate, uh, he, I'm sure he wouldn't find it that difficult to get a seat and could do it and run the two things in parallel. If he's not standing again in London in 20. Uh, 16, what's not to lose, but still, I'm not saying he would do that. Um, on, I mean, I think the future of London's powers is fascinating, particularly in the context of the Scottish devolution debate. Um, Scottish devolution debate is going to have profound impact, I think, on English politics. And uh, Wales will want more powers, and whoever's mayor will say, right, if the Scots are going to get all of this, when Scotland and Wales aren't as big as London in popular, added together, it aren't as big as London, why can't London have lots more power? And that's going to leave the rest of England completely <coughs> all run from central London, no devolved power, and then what's going to happen there? So, uh, this is the, you know, Scot the Scottish devolution referendum, I think, is going to have lots of fascinating impa impacts in England, certainly strengthening the argument for greater autonomy in London. On the Manchester point, there is no doubt that Greater Manchester, uh, Manchester and Greater Manchester have prospered mightily. I would argue it's very heavily off the back of a particular set of personalities who happened like a planetary alignment to be there. Richard Lees, Howard Bernstein, Peter Smith in, in Wigan, and it's allowed a system to operate. We will find out how resilient it is in the long term. Systems of government don't improve anything on their own. I mean, systems of government plus. So a good mayor and a good system, a good mayoral system will be able to drive things. Uh, but a small um, 
So a bad, any bad politicians in any system will make it bad. So, you know, so I think that Manchester is, uh, works, but it works because of those people uh, particularly. Anything else to say that everybody else hasn't said? Uh... Time for one more round, three, three questions, final comments, and, and combined with summary from the panel. Ali, I'm actually a Green Party candidate. I should be out on one of the few uh, dry days with uh, my team in Brent, but I'm here because you invited Jenny and we thought we should send a substitute. Really found the, uh, the talks and discussion illuminating so far. I was pleased to note um, that there was one... Uh, question asked uh, very specifically about what is Siobhan Bonita in it for, which wasn't actually answered. Oh, no, and I think that's a good sign because one of the themes that's emerging is this um, potential or presumed conflict between personality and real politics. I really liked what um, Steve Richard was saying at the outset about uh, the potential disingenuity of the uh, independent uh, Siobhan's claim to entitlement, and it's also been expressed here that they're somehow entitled to this airtime. I think what they're entitled to, after having actually uh, completed the very formal exercise of collecting signatures from each borough and also putting down a £10,000 deposit, is to being on the ballot paper, to getting two pages in the mayoral booklet, but to pretend or to suppose that with no track record and with no actual test of representation, they should be entitled <coughs> to equal uh, airtime, I think is a, is a dangerous claim which should be challenged and contested. And it's quite surprising to me, actually, that so few independents have come forward. I even had a few texts before the close of the nominations from people saying that I will be standing for mayor, and they didn't actually go through. So it seems that sufficient checks and balances are in place for people to exercise self-discipline, to not go ahead as potential egotists. But I think the real interest here is, is that, as has already been expressed with Ken and Boris potentially, they do actually embody or prefigure what their parties stand for or certain strands of thought within their politics and actually that's what we're after we're after a conjunction where we feel that the candidate does actually stand for the party which has a track record and also has a, a wealth of um, hidden uh, apparatchiks there who are actually working on the policy and that also that they can st they can actually vote for somebody and they can understand um, what his personality is at the same time. But the two things aren't mutually exclusive. And I think that we do have a contest, a genuine contest, where candidates can be tested on their party's claims in addition to people wanting to be able to understand uh, their thinking on various issues. Uh, Nico McDonald. Um, among, I don't have any affiliations here, but among other things, I have co-programmed with the Mayor's Office a series of debates during the Story of London Festival on the future of London. Mm. And I think it's been remarkable how little serious debate there's been about the future of London, particularly economically, uh, in the debates. I went to the Evening Standard debate and I watched the ITV debate the other day. Uh, just as a reflection on the, you know, how can we have uh, a discussion around the future of, you know, the biggest economic unit in the UK uh, with no one actually talking about the economy, let alone innovation, new industries and so on. It's remarkable. Um, but this is a discussion more around the dynamics of the election than the, the, the issues. And it seems to me that historically, at least in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a tendency for incumbents to be uh, pushed out of office. You can see what's happening in France at the moment maybe an example of that. Uh, and it seems to me that perhaps the dynamics in this election have gone beyond that. Since that tendency arose, we've had major scandals around Westminster, which may or may not impact on local elections. We've had the media scandal and the revelation of the closeness of politicians and the media and so on. And I wonder, this is perhaps particularly to Peter, but I'm sure everyone have a view on it, what impact 
the more recent political developments have had on voters' attitude towards uh, not just incumbents, but parties and politicians as a whole, or as individuals. It seems to me that Siobhan Benita may be an example of a kind of development around that where people are not only hostile to parties, but anyone who has got any association with being a professional politician, uh, being an incumbent or being someone who is allied to a set of ideas. And Benita, interesting as she is, doesn't express her ideas as much as her lack of uh, engagement by the media in, in the debate, which I think is disappointing. Are, are, there, are there new developments taking place in the relationship of, of voters to, uh, to the candidates and the parties? We've got a chance for one more. Uh, I'm Sheena MacDonald. Uh, very briefly, uh, Jeremiah's amongst uh, the commentariat said there's going to be a rerun of last summer's riots. Does any of you know that any of the mayoral candidates has any stratagem for dealing with such a possibility? If you're very short, you had your hand up. Do you want to ask your question? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is quite a short question, it's, uh, but it's uh, touching on the tax, the personal tax issue. Um, Ken was sort of described as very coldly asking a question about Boris's tax. Uh, in a sort of uh, calculated way, and I don't know whether that was really calculated or not. I think he possibly believed what he was asking would give him an advantage. And Boris was described as viscerally um, swearing at Ken and, and accusing him of being a fucking liar. And, and my question is, do, do you think uh, it, that those descriptions of what happened um, were true or whether... Um, Possibly in one case uh, there was a visceral reaction and the other it was more calculated. Okay. Um, I'll go ask the panel to both respond to the, the last round of points and say any final summing up points or final thoughts you'd like to say. Uh, let's start with Pippa. Um, <coughs> oh, excuse me, sorry. Um, uh, Sheena's question first. Um, they all have policies on tackling the... Um, the riots. Boris is, is specifically, he's already carried out a report um, into the causes of it and his, the out, his outcomes so far seem to be um, focusing on education. Um, so uh, the problem of the number of, um, of kids that ended up in the courts and the number of them which had already had been um, in trouble with the police and the links with um, being excluded from school. Um, a, a large number of them had been excluded from school and so he wants to focus on illiteracy and uh, has made a pledge off the top of my head it's something like uh, stamping it out amongst 11 year olds in, um, by I guess by 2016 um, and has got various strategies in place to or, or that would be in place to deal with that um, Brian Paddix is very much more focusing on the policing perspective and Ken um, says that he believes um, they could have avoided it in the first place if the mayor or senior police officers had been available to talk to Mark Duggan's family that first night when they came to the police station in Tottenham. But um, as an extension of that, then goes on to say that if they, um, if the, if there had been a mayor in City Hall that people felt was listening to them, that it wouldn't have taken off in quite the way it did. So that's the main party's policies, pretty much. <laughs> that answers that. Um, the descriptions of events, it was in the lift. You could go onto the LBC website and listen to that again now, I'm sure. I think, I, I presume it was all 
reported as verbatim, and certainly so was that deliberate, a sort of careful plan? Oh, I think he's see, asking right. yeah, yeah. Just thought of it that Well, moment. no, I'm sure. Well, I, I, you know, knowing Ken, as I'm sure many of you do, I suspect that he quite likes the. Uh, he, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't the first time that he'd had a dig about Boris over his own taxes, and it was slightly disingenuous as well. But um, he knew he'd get a reaction, and that later obviously proved true in the lift. He got quite a reaction there. Um, and the other question, forgive me, was um, Nico on the future of London, London's economy and impact of, and it hasn't been it hasn't been debated. Well, actually, I think it actually is one of the uh, Peter's polling shows it's one of the key areas that people are um, most concerned about. And you know, you can't shut the candidates up talking about jobs um, and uh, economic regeneration, the Shoreditch. Um, the, the new technologies um, developing in Shoreditch, the city's position as financial services. I mean, it's their number one favourite issue, especially in the current um, economic um, in the current times, <laughs> just to prove that they would be the best person to to um, you know to deal with the situation as it is. And one final point, if I may, quickly about Siobhan. I'm intrigued. We didn't answer the question earlier that the gentleman at the back made, but I'm intrigued as to, to know what Siobhan will do next. Maybe she can tell us afterwards. Is she wanting to stand for Parliament? Is, she's made it, she's been made it quite clear that she has supported Labour in the past. Has she got her eye on the male candidate for Labour next time? Would she stand as an independent, independent next time? So it'd be interesting to see what, what she does next. Right. Um, Peter. Um, take the first two questions. I would just say that in a, in a contest dominated by Ken and Boris, I'm not sure the most fruitful line of attack against Siobhan is that she's a negatist. Um, <laughs> um, um, and uh, as for as, as for um, Nico about um, the candidates not talking about innovation and wealth creation, you know, having, having spent thirty years as a journalist and then helping to develop from scratch, uh, you know, a, a small private sector business, I have to say, thank goodness. There's one thing worse than politicians not talking about innovation and business, and that's politicians talking about innovation and business. So I, I, you know, I'm very happy when they, when they keep off that, that turf and concentrate on, you know, on public services and public... My question was about attitudes to incumbency. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. But let me say the more sort of serious half of that was, was you know, I think... The, um, I'm not sure I'm directly answering your question, but let me say it anyway. But one of the things... That has happened increasingly recently, uh, you know, post budget and with the you know uh, recession carrying on, is there is now uh, you know a general public despair against politicians of all parties, and it's one of the I think one of the underlying themes is, is the, you know, the the lack of respect or support for the traditional parties. One of the questions we ask regularly is. Um, which party do you think this applies most to, Conservative, Labour, Liberal Democrats, that it's led by people of real ability? And um, you'll find on our site tomorrow a poll we've completed today, we ask it every, I think, couple of weeks, um, that for the first time, not a single one of the three parties gets to 20% on that measure. Well over 60% say either don't know or none of them. Um, and I think that's really actually quite terrifying. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure how relevant that is to next week's vote here in London, but it's an attempt to, to deal with that question. Let me finally throw out one sort of creative thought, both generally and for next time in London. Um, and it relates to the 
um, controversy over whether the government should fund political parties more. My answer is no, but they should fund democracy more. I think one of the most interesting things that happened in the last general election was the uh, the, the, the GP who won in Totnes, having won the Conservative nomination through a, um, a, a, a primary that any voter in Totnes could take part in. I would love to see public funding for open primaries. And I think an open primary, open primaries in London for the candidates of the main parties where the, uh, the government funded the postage um, would perhaps be a way of reconnecting voters to the system and reconnecting political parties uh, to voters and perhaps uh, getting a more interesting array of candidates uh, to stand because if Ken Livingston does lose, I think one can in part trace it back to the fact that it was effectively the traditional Labour machine system that got him the nomination over Una King well, whatever it was, eight, eight, 18 months ago, Ken's victory in the nomination was a machine victory and his possible defeat next week will be the public's rejection of machine politics. Uh, Tony? Well, I, mean, I, I do think on the, the economy issue, a great deal has been said. I agree with uh, Pippa about that. Uh, but, you know, like many British politicians, um, you know, they don't... I think very few British politicians actually believe in planning the economy and, and or planning any economy and that if you're Mayor of London you don't have that much power to do it anyway. Um, on the riot question, um, I think that the riots, I mean, nobody really even now knows why the riots happened and therefore quite difficult to know what any mayor would have done to stop them in my personal view or could still do. The, the conditions that created them are still by no means fully understood. But just, I mean, just to bring everything to, to, to a conclusion, I mean, um, although I think we've all agreed uh, policy hasn't played as much of a role in this election as it might have been. We mustn't be, I mean, I, I raised this point too when I said it, um, but it mustn't be too naive. There's a limit to what, to how, I think Peter will know this better than anybody, a limit to what people are prepared to listen to by way of detailed policy. And so they're always going to get an image of a party or an image of an individual when they go to vote. And um, it's up to the candidate to use all the uh, means they have to suggest by what they say and what they appear like what they really mean about an array of issues and that's in some ways akin to a political party in a general election so in the end if we vote for Ken or Boris we'll sort of collectively have known what we did and what we want. Steve. Uh, just a couple of points really. The first one is that even in a mayoral context where, if Tessa Jowell is right, independence will flourish soon, even if they won't next Thursday. Um, virtually all the judgments are partly value-based still. So, for example, the congestion charge was, on the whole, more likely to have been instigated by a left-of-centre mayor than a right-of-centre mayor. I mean, the Tories opposed the congestion charge. Ken Livingstone drove it through. Similarly, Boris Johnson's case that London will benefit from a lower top rate of tax and for being pretty soft on the bankers compared with what some want is a right-of-centre set of value judgments. You could disagree with the left-of-centre judgments that got to the congestion charge or the Boris Johnson ones, but to pretend this is some sort of apolitical arena 
where a bunch of managers are making technocratic decisions, I think undermines what is going on in the context of these mayoral contests. Secondly and finally, a running theme really of the questions and the answers is, I think, still a gap between expectation and power. These are still pretty limited, the powers of the mayor. And when I've watched these hustings, what slightly worried me, actually, Sheena's question is worrying in the sense that I don't think the mayor will be able to control what happens entirely if the riots happen again. Who runs the police force in London is, goes well beyond uh, the mayor, much more so than in New York. Um, and I've noticed in the hustings questions about, you know, what are you going to do about poverty in London? What are you going to do about X, Y, and Z? And I think there's an assumption out there uh, that the mayor has more power than he or she has at the moment. And in that gap, I think there are a few dangers of disillusionment. But we're still at a very experimental phase, but it's one that I think on the whole is a really positive experiment. Thank you very much. Um, I think in terms of... Um, making sure that we've uh, kept the balance of the evening. I just want to check that there's no one from representing in some sort of way any of the candidates who we haven't heard from this evening. We have heard from three in terms of people on behalf of them. Um, I don't want anyone to go away and say they didn't have a chance to make their two pennyworth in, in that capacity. I know um, what one, of, uh, the, one of the two representatives of candidates who are still in the room, because Tessa had to go, has, has, has a great desire to make, respond to some of the comments, which is fair enough, but actually the chance to do that is shortly, because there'll be more drinks and other refreshments in a moment, and people can quiz you, and you can uh, make points to them. Indeed, both of you can. Indeed, anyone else can. But I just want to check I haven't avoided anyone's hand up who was actually on behalf of any of the other candidates. As we've heard, there are, there are seven. Okay, that, that's hopefully we're right on that front. Uh, just to, to, to wrap up, I think the... Um, uh, I, n n not even conceive of summarising it all, and, and you've heard what uh, lots of fascinating <laughs> material. I think the... Uh, what, one thing that didn't come out as much tonight as I thought it would, particularly uh, uh, Tony, like I, I is uh, we're sort of very keen followers of New York, which is said to be the model for this structure. And there's some interesting things that, that are happening there. Uh, we heard the word Bloomberg, though, in a different context from, from Stryker Maguire there. But uh, very much there's a mayoral election next year in New York, and the, and the whole personality versus party issue, Bloomberg being now an independent in New York, uh, the, on the media uh, front, the whole issue of debates and candidates uh, is an interesting analogy. There have sometimes been quite a lot of candidates in the New York elections. I think there might be some... And the reason for saying New York specifically is because the, this model is very much... The structure, the, the legislation that created it is very much an American-type mayoral model. There, there are other examples around the world. On debates... Um, we just had the first round of the French presidential election. I don't, don't think they've had a debate with all ten candidates. They had to have absolutely precise equality of coverage of all ten. Now, maybe there's an answer in, in there somewhere. Whether those pieces of coverage were worth watching or not is another question. Uh, that's a good point, but uh, just, just mention that. Anyway, thank you all to everybody. Do stay and have a further drink, refreshment, talk, whether with candidates, representatives, or amongst yourselves. And uh, thank you for coming, and thank you very much to the Tony, panel. Can we thank the Corporation of London for hosting this? Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. <laughs>